Turning your Bibles today to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, going from verse 1 to 15. We continue our study through this book, uh, this letter of Paul to the Corinthians. Uh, we begin a new chapter today, a new part of the letter, in chapter 8. Hear the word of our Lord. Verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For the readiness is there, If the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, you tell us that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word endures forever. All flesh is like grass. We are grass. You remember that we are dust. And so we need you and we need your help, the help of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would give us eternal perspectives on these things that we study today. We pray that we would come to your word as that which endures forever and learn 
and live it out and follow your plan, your will for our lives. We pray that all this would be done for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you were raising money for your cause, what would you do? How would you go about your fundraising campaign? Uh, Would you get one of those giant cardboard thermometers that maybe you have seen in some places, like some churches? A giant cardboard thermometer with the levels of money that you need, and every time you reach the the goal, the 2,000 or the 5,000, you color it red so that the red fills up the thermometer? Uh, would you constantly remind people that you are a nonprofit and that their donations will be tax deductible and good for their filing of their taxes? Or would you hold a raffle and tell people that the more raffle tickets that they buy, the more chance they will have of getting this brand new SUV? Or would you have a bake sale and sell pies and cookies so that you can raise your money? Would you send out a bunch of mass mailings all the time, constantly reminding people or hounding people that they can give? Would you make a video? Make a video and Put a, put a sad little girl from Africa in your video, sitting there crying, and then appeal to people to give. Because if they don't give, this little girl is going to be very, very sad. Well, these are all kinds of ways, you know, that people use to motivate We might even could use the word manipulate sometimes, motivate people to give money. And they can even use these tactics in the church. I'm not saying that if you want to raise money for a a cause like a charity or um, even a, a ministry outside the church, maybe that you can't use fundraisers and you can't use some of these tactics. Like I'm not saying bake sales are sin or anything, but when the Bible comes to motivate us to give money, we don't see any of these tactics. We don't see any of this kind of manipulation, and we don't see anything that appeals to people's selfish, carnal desires. Like, give money to the church so that you could get an SUV. But there are churches that have raffles for cars to raise money for their church. But if we're going to take seriously what the Bible says about how a church should be and how our worship should be, like, Uh, giving is a part of the worship of the church, then we should seek to have our practice be in line with what is commanded of us in the Bible and what is the, the example for us in the Bible. And we don't see any of these kinds of examples. There's no manipulation. There's no, here's what you can get out of it from an earthly perspective. But Paul as he asks people to give, to be generous towards the kingdom and towards the church, he 
reminds them of many things, including the grace of Christ and of their love for him and their love for the church. All kinds of other reasons that don't appeal to their own what they can get out of it. And so we come to this chapter. Chapters 8 and 9 are a new part of the letter where he is moving from the reconciliation that's taken place with the Corinthians in chapter 7, and now he's getting down to business, literally, in chapter 8. He's getting down to God's business. There has been a famine in Jerusalem, and the saints of Jerusalem are in need. There's a church that is in need. And in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, Paul had asked them, that when they gather on the Lord's day, that they should take up an offering, which is why we as a church, we take up an offering on the Lord's day. They should take up an offering, and on that day, they should set aside some of what they have to give to the offering. And Paul said that he was going to come, and he was going to take that offering uh, to the saints in Jerusalem. But if you've been going through this letter with us, you know that a lot has happened since 1 Corinthians 16. And so Paul hasn't been able to do that. Uh, He had to make this emergency painful visit to Corinth and they got in a fight. And so none of that happened. And so now one of the things that he wants to bring up in this letter, it's called 2 Corinthians, is to remind them and to finish that collection for these saints in need. And by reconciling with him, And now partnering with him, Paul wants them to be a part of this mission that he has to go to Jerusalem. And so that's why he brings this up in chapters 8 and 9. And so there are many lessons in chapters 8 and 9 about giving. Uh, So we're going to have several sermons about giving. Uh, I'm sure you're really excited to to hear about giving. Uh, I actually... I, uh, I. I always feel nervous preaching about giving because I hate prosperity preaching. And I do not want to sound at all like a prosperity preacher. And yet, when we go through the Bible, we come to these topics, including giving. And so we can't avoid them. We need to learn what the Bible says about how to use our money and how to give. And so some of the lessons that we're going to see as we begin chapter 8 today is, as I began, that Paul's motivation for giving is not what you can get out of it, but that you sacrifice in your giving because you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's begin looking at chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. Uh, first, we're going to see how to give, then why give, and then third, what to give, or how much to give. So first, he talks about how to give. Now remember, again, uh, as Paul ends chapter 7, he's going to go into this topic of giving, but he gently eases himself into the topic. He doesn't say, By the way, now that everything's good, my budget is running low, I need a million dollars by May. So can you pony up some money? 
He doesn't even say as he starts chapter 8 that he needs money. He just says, by the way, I want you to know about something. I want you to know about the brothers in Macedonia. And so he starts with just an example. And then he's going to give them some instructions based on that example. But let's look at the example of the Macedonians and some of the lessons that we can learn as Paul brings up this example of Macedonia. The first thing we learn about how to give is that we should give as a grace. Look at the word that Paul uses in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. God's grace has been at work in some way through this church of Macedonia. And then he uses the word in in verse 6 and 7 again. Accordingly, verse 6, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. So this act of grace was this giving. He calls it an act of grace. And then in verse 7, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. And so the first thing we can learn here is that our giving is an act of grace. It's an act of the grace of, of God at work in us. We don't give to the church as a penance, right? You do something bad, so you got to pay off your sin, pay penance to the church. You definitely don't give as an indulgence to shave off some years in purgatory the more you give. And that's what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, right? That, that giving is a work that can earn some forgiveness or salvation. But giving is not to earn something before God. It's not an act of penance. It's an act of grace. It's God's grace that works in us. Now, he mentions in verse 7, seven multiple graces, or we would call them gifts, maybe, spiritual gifts. The word gift and the word grace mean it's the same word. Faith is a gift, spiritual gift, speech, teaching, knowledge, earnestness, love. These are all spiritual gifts. You can add more service and hospitality and administration. These are all works of grace in your life. But every Christian, every church should excel in this act of grace. So our generosity is going to be the fruit of God's spirit working in us and the God maturing us in the faith. It's part of our sanctification. As you become more sanctified in your faith, you will become a better servant. You will become more hospitable. You will become more loving. You'll also become more generous. That's part of how we grow in grace. Now, this is God working in us. It's his act of grace. But we are also instructed to grow in grace. 
We are instructed here in verse 7 to excel in this grace. And so you need to take charge of this. And you need to do this because you should want to please God as he works his grace in you. So if giving is an act of grace, then giving is like the thermometer. We don't have thermometers to measure how much money we've given or how much money we need. We have a thermometer spiritually, metaphorically, to measure our sanctification, or at least part of it. One of the ways that I know that I'm growing and being more like Christ is that I'm also growing in my generosity. God's grace can be at work in our lives. That should also be encouraging to you. Uh, If you wonder sometimes, you're down on yourself, man, I feel like I'm not growing, I feel like I don't love Christ enough, Well, one of the things you can evaluate is, well, are you generous? Are you giving? And if you are generous, that should be an encouraging sign to you of God's grace at work in your life. So do you want to grow? Do you want to be more like Christ? Do you want to excel? Then do, as Paul says, excel in this act of grace also. The second thing he mentions is that we are to give generously. And this is what we see in the example of Macedonia. So go back to verse 2. So this grace of God is at work in Macedonia. He says in verse 2, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. So the first thing we find out about this good example is in verse 2, is that they were suffering in some way in Macedonia. Uh, They were not a rich area like Corinth. Corinth is um, one of the more well-off areas in in the the empire. Macedonia was not one of those richer areas. So more normal people or, or lower class people. And so they had this affliction themselves. But Paul says they had an abundance. An abundance of joy. Even though they were poor, they abounded in joy. And this abundance of joy led to their actions. Their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They overflowed in generosity. And their generosity was based on the fact that they sacrificed even though they themselves were poor. So this is what generosity is. It's sacrifice. So if you make a million dollars and you give $10,000, that's not really a sacrifice. If you make $60,000 in a year and you give $10,000, that is a far greater sacrifice. Paul doesn't say, look at the Macedonians. They gave $10,000. 
It doesn't matter that really the, the dollar amount, that's not what he cares about. It's not that they gave $10,000 if they're millionaires. No, what he says is they overflowed in generosity because they gave even in their affliction. They didn't have a lot, but they were still willing to give. Now, remember, just so far, this is, this is just the example. And he's going to say, I'm not commanding you to do this. But it is an example. It's an inspiration, a motivation to us to give generously, to sacrifice. Now, then he says in verse 3, they gave according to their means and beyond their means. They gave according to what they had, but then they gave beyond their means. It's a strange statement. What, what does that mean? Uh, when we use the term living beyond your means as far as money, we mean that somebody is going into debt. People do this all the time. Don't do this. It's bad. People get these credit cards. Zero percent interest for one year. And they go through Crossgates Mall and they're swiping, swiping, and swiping. And they load up that card with all kinds of debt. And so for a year, they have zero interest on that card. And, and maybe they're able to then apply for another card. And somehow they get another card. And they transfer the balance onto their new card. And then they go swiping and swiping and swiping. So they got the, the debt from year one. And now they're adding more debt from year two. And, and people just get themselves in this cycle of debt. That's an extreme version of living beyond your means. Spending way more money than you have. But that's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying they gave money by going into debt. That doesn't make any sense. So what does he mean? Well, they were poor. And the definition of being poor is that you have enough money to live on. You don't have extra. You don't have extra for your giant TV. You just have enough to live on. But even in their poverty, they somehow sacrificed to give. So they realized that the saints in Jerusalem didn't even have enough to live on. They didn't have food for the day. And so what this might mean for a poor person is that if they just have enough money to buy food for the day, they might go hungry for one day and take that little bit of money and send it to Jerusalem. Or they might say, you know what, I'm going to put in some extra work. I'm going to work another shift and I'm going to make some extra money, but I'm not going to make the extra money to buy a new pair of shoes for myself because I don't need those. I have food for the day. I'm going to work an extra shift so I can give to the saints of Jerusalem. That is generous, isn't it? That someone could use the extra money that they could have spent on themselves to get themselves out of poverty. And instead, they give it to those who are in even more need, who are dying. So the Macedonians were generous, he says in verse 5. It's because they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us. They recognized that their life was not their own. As Paul said in chapter 5, 
Christ died so that those who live no longer live for themselves. We don't live for ourselves, not even in our money. We don't have all our money just to spend on ourselves because it's not for us. But we give ourselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to to Paul as the apostle. So the Macedonians are here to be an example to Corinth, but also to us. Look look again in verse 5. This was not what Paul expected. So again, he's not saying everybody must do this. If you have money beyond your daily necessities, you better give it away or you're in sin. That's not what he says. We don't expect you to just have food for the day and give everything else away. If you want to do that, sure. That's a great example. But they still are here to be an example to us. Paul is not an ascetic, meaning that uh, we are not to have any earthly pleasures in this life. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, Paul says, God gives us all things richly to enjoy. And so there's not anything wrong with enjoying good things in life. And so you shouldn't feel bad. This sermon is not telling you. um, The Macedonians probably would do this, but I'm not saying you have to do this. That, you know, it's bad to spend $2 on coffee because coffee is not really a necessity. Give that $2 away. No. We could say God gives us all things to enjoy. If you enjoy coffee, drink that coffee that costs you $2. You could even enjoy good coffee. It costs more than $2. He gives you all things to enjoy. You're not required to give all of these extra things. But we should look at the example. And we should say, we want to have this grace too. We want to be generous. We want to sacrifice. And so even though you and I don't have to sacrifice these things, There should be something in us that desires to be sacrificial in our giving. Especially as we look at generous people like the Macedonians. So how do we give? We give as a grace and we give generously. Next, he goes into why they should give. As he Finishes up verse 7. He's calling the Corinthians now to be involved in this collection, this offering. And so then in verses 8 to 11, he explains why they should give. First, he says, they should give as a matter of love. I say that, verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. The Macedonians were earnest. Don't you want to prove yourself, Corinthians? Don't you want to prove that you also love these saints and that you love me and my mission, Apostle Paul speaking? If you want to love me, then you need to support my mission just like the Macedonians are. So I'm giving you a test, Paul says. That's the word. Prove. Test. Test if your love is genuine. Paul knows that we give to things that we love. Grandparents love 
their grandchildren. Grandparents like to buy things for their grandchildren. They spend lots of money on their grandchildren because they love them. You give to what you love. And so Paul says, you love the gospel, you love the kingdom, you love the church. That's one of the reasons you give. We are to love the church because it's where we hear the word of God. We, we love those who shepherd over us. We especially love that they preach and teach the word of God. And so there, there are some who don't have the ability. Some churches cannot fully support someone to preach the word of God to them. But the Bible says those who preach the gospel ought to earn their living by the gospel. They ought to be fully supported, if possible, by the church. Why? Because the church should want someone who will devote themselves to the word of God. Because the church loves the word of God so much, they don't want to get what someone has been thinking about at 10 p.m. at night after a long day of work. Cobbling something together on Saturday night to try to say something to the church because they've had so many stresses throughout the week. That's the point of why you give for that area of the church. Because you love the word of God and you want the best, the richest meats of the word. We give to the church because we love missions. And we want the word of God also proclaimed across the world. And so through the church, the church is then able to support other people who preach the gospel and other churches that are in need. You give to the church because you love your brothers and sisters in the church. And when there are needs in the church, the church can then provide and help those in need. We give to the church because we love gathering together. And so that means you have to have a place to gather together. And that requires giving. We give to what we love. We love the church. That's why we give to the church. But then he says, you also give because of the grace of God. In verse 9, here's another reason. For you know the grace of of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's one of Paul's reasons. Here's why you give. Because you know the grace of Jesus Christ. If you remember this verse sounds a lot like chapter 5, verse 21 of Christ becoming sin so that we would become righteous. But now he kind of changes that and talks about the financial words, but he's talking spiritually. Christ was rich. The Son of God had all the riches of the world with the delight of the Father from eternity, creating the angels to have Worship, bowing down before him, the seraphim and cherubim, bowing down before him. Christ experienced nothing but the riches of the glory of God as the Son of God, and yet he became poor. He became poor by assuming a human nature 
And as a human being, in his human nature, he would be weak and tired, spat on and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and he would die. He would die a painful death on the cross, and he would experience the wrath of God, becoming a curse. He who was rich became poor. Why? He says, for your sake. It was for your sake. It was the love of God. Why Jesus went to the cross. Why the Son of God became man. Because you were poor. You had nothing. You had nothing that you could bring to God, spiritually speaking. There is nothing good in you. You try and you try. You try to be good and it's nothing before God. You have nothing to offer Him. And yet you, who had nothing, you could become rich. You were given the full inheritance of the Son You are treated as the Son of God who perfectly obeyed all of your life. You have the riches of the kingdom and the inheritance. They all belong to you as a son or daughter of the kingdom adopted into his family. You were just lifted out of poverty. You were made of the richest in the world, spiritually speaking. You have more riches than you could ever need. Every spiritual blessing is yours in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus became poor for your sake. And so Paul says, you know. You know this. Well, maybe some of you don't know. Maybe some of you today, you have yet to know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ because you still are trying to offer up to God something. You're still trying to come up with the cash to pay him off, to try to get him to accept you and to love you with all of the good works that you try to do. But you need to know that that is nothing. And the only way for you to be accepted by God is through faith in Jesus Christ. He became poor so that you might become rich. Go to Christ. Trust him. Love him and follow him and you will have these spiritual riches. So Christian, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is appealing to the Corinthians based on what you know. Don't you want to be generous yourself? Isn't Christ a greater example and isn't Christ the one who motivates us? Christ did not hold on to what he had. Christ sacrificed. Christ was generous for you. How can we not seek to live like him? Sacrificing, being generous with the things that we have. I thought this would be a good time to bring up a question some of you might be asking about, which is the issue of tithing. Some people say Christians don't need to tithe anymore. Some people say we do still need to tithe. 
And I think that verse 9 gives us kind of an, an explanation of, of this, not directly. So if you ask me, what do I, do I think we should tithe? My answer is no and yes. No and yes. No, if you're talking about an Old Testament, Old Covenant law that was a nation of Israel taxing its people, forcing them to give 10%. Uh, Church of England used to do that. They used to tax everybody 10% to pay for their pastors. Um, No, that's not what we do because we are in the new covenant, not the old covenant. I do believe that all gifts are are voluntary. And I think we see this principle in in these chapters. He's, He's asking them voluntarily to give. He's not forcing them to give 10%. So in that sense, no. But in another way, yes. Yes. Because here's how I would say it. If people in the old covenant who didn't know the grace of Jesus gave 10% because they were forced to, and Paul says what should motivate you is that Christ became poor so you might become rich, then in the new covenant we have even more reasons to be generous. And if 10% in the old covenant was the minimum And Christians are called to be generous. Then I think we can say we're called to give even beyond 10%. So don't say, phew, he doesn't think I need to give 10%. I'm good. Good with giving my 2%. That's not what I'm saying. No, I'm saying I would say 10% is the floor. 10% is the minimum. 10% is what was required of Old Covenant believers. You know the grace of Christ. We should go even beyond that and grow more and more in generosity in our giving. So we give because of the grace of Jesus. But then third, he gives a third reason. You give because you know it's the right thing to do. Verses 10 and 11, he says this, In this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. So basically he says, this benefits you. Why? Because you are going to be embarrassed. You've committed to the saints in Jerusalem that you would give them this money, and they're over there starving. And now you haven't followed through on your commitment. And he says, you know this is the right thing. You you desire it. You're ready to do it. Now you just need to complete it. You just need to do it. And this is also applicable to us. We know as Christians that we should give. It's not hard to convince a Christian that they should. But we slack. We slack off. You slack off on a lot of things. We slack off on our prayers. We slack off on uh, uh, church attendance sometimes. We can be slackers. And it's easy to slack off on giving because 
I'm not looking at how, how many people are putting their hands in the offering plate, putting the check in. I'm not tracking if, if you haven't stuck your hand in there for the last three months. People don't really know if you're giving or not. Most of us don't. We're not going to find that out very easily. And so you can go weeks, months without giving. But you know. You know it's the right thing to do. And if you're a member, you've made a commitment. You voluntarily commit yourself to supporting the church. You're saying that you want to be held accountable. You've committed it. You have the readiness. You have the desire. Paul says, do it. Complete your desire. What he says to the Corinthians applies to us too. Give because you know that you should. Well, finally, he talks about what to give. In the last part, verses 12 to 15. Verse 12, he says, if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. And so I've called this proportional giving. In verse 12, you give according to what you have, not according to what you don't have. Remember again, Paul doesn't care necessarily how much money that is as far as the dollars. He's not asking them to give $100,000. He never mentions a number here, which kind of frustrates me about when other people ask for giving. We need a certain amount of money. No, it's not about getting the goal. It's about you being obedient to what God has given you and give according to what you have. Now, the problem for us is complicated is that we live in a country where basically all of us, we have what we need. We have the basics. But we say, well, I don't have enough to give. I don't have anything to give. What does that mean? If I'm supposed to give according to what I have, I feel like I don't have anything, we, we need to evaluate ourselves. Is that really true? You don't have money to give? Maybe things that you think you need aren't actually what you need. Maybe you're not managing your money very well. Maybe you don't budget your money at all, or maybe you don't stick to your budget. Maybe you make impulsive decisions about the things that you buy. Maybe you overspend on things that you don't need to overspend on. I tried to come up with a crazy example. Um, So I looked up how much certain dog breeds cost. You know that there's a dog breed that costs $80,000? So if someone has a dog and they say, well, I can't give. Uh, If I I want to be cruel, I would say, well, you can give because you don't need a dog. Right? You don't need your dog. Uh, But I'm not going to be cruel. Uh, Okay, fine. Um, 
You can keep your dog. But if someone says, I don't have anything to give, and I say, did you spend $80,000 on that dog? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and I say, okay, well, you don't need an $80,000 dog. You get what I'm saying? But these are the kinds of conversations, that's the extreme, but these are the kinds of things that happen all the time. You, do you need that car? Do you need that tool that costs three times as much as that other tool? Do you need that particular house? We could go on and on and on. That's the problem that we face in this country is that we say we don't have. But the question is, what do you really have? We want to grow in this grace. And so, again, as Paul says, this is voluntary. I'm not going to tell you what breed of dog you need to buy. I'm not going to tell you that you can't have a car that costs this much money. We're not going to say those kinds of things. But you need to live before God with a clean conscience. That you are giving according to what you have. The last thing he says. We give according to what's fair. Fairness. Fairness to help those in need. Uh, Giving is voluntary. It's not forced. We're not taxing people. Um, But a believer can see a need and they should think, you know, it's fair that they have nothing and I have extra. I could buy this cool thing for myself, but they don't have anything even close to that. It would be fair for me to voluntarily give my extra for what they need. This is what he says in verse 13. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, whoever gathered little had no lack. It doesn't make sense for you to go broke to uh, fill somebody else's need, right? He says, your abundance supplies their need. One day, you will have a need, and they will have an abundance. We work in the category of what's fair. So, you should desire to give to a need. He ends by quoting Exodus 16. Verse 18. And this is the story of the manna. Now, Israel had been given manna for each day, and God had said that they are to fill up basically a jar each for that day, and that they would only eat for that day. The next day, they'd get a a new manna, fill up their jar. And so, in this verse, he's saying that there were people who tried to, to hoard some extra for themselves. They gathered much. And it turns out they had nothing left over. You know why? Because God made the manna rot and stink. And it bred worms when they woke up the next day. 
They had nothing left over. And those who gathered a little, they gathered their jar, never lacked anything. And so Paul's using that as an example. First of all, God had a way of making everything fair. Everybody had the manna that they needed. But I think he's also saying this as a warning to the Corinthians. If you try to gather much, you'll have nothing left over. If you try to hoard your manna or your money, God has a way of making it rot. God has a way of making it stink. You look at your 401k one day, you say, oh, this is awful. Could it be? Could it be God saying you're trying to hoard too much? Saving is not bad. Retirement plans aren't bad. But are, are you hoarding instead of being generous? God has a way of making sure things are fair. And so Paul, I think, is applying the proverb, Proverbs eleven twenty four, that the one who gives freely grows all the richer. And another withholds what he should give and suffers only want. Of course, I'm not saying you should give so that you will get rich. That's not what the Bible promises. But this is a general principle that those who hoard for themselves, it doesn't work out. God wants to bless the generous. God will bless you by providing everything you need. You will have no lack if you sacrifice and you're generous. So may we grow in this grace and excel. May we complete, put into practice the desire and the readiness that we have. Give generously and sacrificially. Let's pray. Oh Lord, above all, we thank you for being rich in mercy towards us, for blessing us beyond all that we deserve, for your benefits that cannot be numbered, especially for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that we would grow in the grace of generosity that you would help us to be like Christ in this way we pray Lord that we would not give out of guilt manipulation or any selfish gain that we might get out of it but for your glory in Jesus name